0: Welcome to Point 2 Law Review, I'm John Brandt. And I'm Carson Messersmith. We're here the week of October 3rd, 2023 to October 6th, 2023. And man, it's October today.
1: It is. Woke up a little chilly. I saw a couple people in coats. I don't know if it's exactly coat weather.
0: Well, <laughs> you are, uh, how they say, hearty bread.
1: That's true. Yeah,
0: and I, I,
1: I run warm. I run warm. Yeah. It's it's shorts and t-shirt weather for me. Well,
0: it, it, I will report at the middle school, it's still hoodies and shorts. <laughs>
1: <laughs> which is
0: a classic look. Nothing like getting dropped
1: off by mom and dad at, you know, 7:50 well, s- in the morning and scurrying off in
0: your your sweatshirt, with and snow your shorts, on the ground, yeah. And that's just how it is. It's midwestern. I love it. Midwestern summer, it's pumpkin spice lattes and uh shorts
1: and hoodies. Yeah, there's some very happy um staff and attorneys in our office who yeah. the the pumpkin season apparently I didn't ever realize how exciting this fall in the air is is it a big thing in your home is it, there all of a sudden different candles burning I mean, no, no. incense
0: she has never uh, subscribed to the pumpkinness okay well it's such she a she loves spooky season
1: it's such a short little um Gap here, like the fall thing. Like, how long can you really put out fall decorations? I mean, it's kind of a bridge Until between Christmas now and Christmas. Yeah.
0: yeah. Do you just kind of shove things out? Well, in my, in my church's calendar, you would fall once Advent starts. You got to go away.
1: Yeah, that's fair. But again, with spooky season, don't when you swap fall for the the spooky season stuff, or do you just overlap. No, you them?
0: take out the skulls and you leave the cornucopias and the orange. They're things. just cornucopias without all the creepy crawlies. Yeah. I like that. You take all the skeletons out and the bugs and the tarantulas. out out of the, and throw them out. Okay. See, I know. oh, look at that. I can go to Hobby Lobby, spend hundred bucks in in January, and I'm, I can decorate. And these. you do that. So what we're signaling though is you better get your costume
1: picked out. It's that time.
0: I have I, the costumes have already been picked so out. So costumes ready. Still gonna do
1: the, the trick or treating. Yeah. Do you think it'll be the year though where you finally phase one child out of trick or treating? No, uh,
0: I have a theater kid. He's all about it.
1: Okay, so he's all in. I'm honestly, I would be into because yeah. people, I feel like people are more gracious. It's like full cut sized candy bars in 2023. Are you gonna dress up this I year? Really? No, <laughs> I don't <laughs> even turn my light on. I'm the worst. I'm a I'm the Grinch of Halloween. When was the last whatever time you that is. Up? Did I ever
0: dress up, Mom? Oh. If you listen to this, somebody a decade ago. <laughs> you were a tomato in 1995. Okay, so here we go. Uh, ex parte summary. Um, we have he, Supreme Court opinions. We got two Supreme Court opinions, and I think the first one's yours. What do you? Yes.
1: Yeah, so we have Rose versus American Family Insurance Company, and statute of
0: limitations contract. I got NRA application of A-19594. This is Central Platte NRD, North Platte NMRD, uh Department of Natural Resources in the Republican Basin High Flow Diversion Project. And the uh, statement would be standing in water, drinking your milkshake. Oh, I like that. Thank you. Okay. Let's get going. Let's jump on it. So actually,
1: I think finally for, for once in about six months. I have the shorter opinion. And so I'm going to go super quick because I know you've got a long one. Uh, So my case is coming on um, posture from a uh, district court granting a motion for summary judgment, determining that a claim for underinsured motorist benefits was barred by a two-year limitations provision in the insurance policy um, that dismissed the action. And so basically what happens here is the entire argument is over a choice of law provision and uh, this was an Iowa policy um, and the choice of law was uh, the difference between a two-year contractual limitation period under that Iowa policy or the statute of limitations in Nebraska which was four years. And so this all comes from a 2018 motor vehicle accident where Rose was injured uh, when she was struck by an underinsured motorist. And so she has uh, the first claim for uh, the other driver, which was the liability limit of 25000 And so that at that point in time, she tries to make a claim against her underinsured uh, insurance carrier for another 25000 And this was an Iowa policy. And the term of this policy said that uh, it would be governed by the laws of the states shown in the declarations as your residence Um, and for the declarations the residence was listed as carter lake iowa and the vehicle listed was being garaged there so the name vehicle was garaged in the carter lake residence and so therefore this was governed by iowa and the contract specifically limited that and the iowa law limited that to a two-year limitations period which had run and so the analysis essentially turns on whether or not that contract time controlled, or if the uh, Nebraska four-year statute of limitations for torts um, controlled this uh, analysis. And the Supreme Court deals with this one pretty quickly and basically says this is a contract. And so this is a two-year limitations period that was dealt with for a contractual deadline in legal actions and is allowed in Iowa. And since Iowa law controls this is um the contractual limitations period that had been uh, negotiated and even though it was shorter than ne- the nebraska statutory period they the nebraska statutory period was not enforceable and does not control and the contract provision is what controls and so therefore it was the uh, two year time frame and so um since it is being enforced and the uh Full faith and credit clause has to be followed under the U.S. Constitution. Here, uh, we are following the choice of law in Iowa, the two-year
0: time period, and therefore the Supreme Court affirmed. Okay, I have, this is a big one. If you deal in water, you deal in standing, you deal in, uh, you know, APA kind of things, regulation stuff, uh, you got to read this one. Um, Not for, you know, any substantive stuff, but if you want to figure out how you can help one side or the other and what kind of arguments you need to make. You need to take a look at this one. This one um is uh the Central Nebraska or excuse me, Central Platte NRD North Platte NRD versus the Na- uh, Nebraska Department of Natural Resources and the, and the uh, Republican or Platte 2 Republican Basin High Flow Diversion Project. So there is this um NRDs have to make integrated management plans for water, and there's a great overview of Nebraska water law in this case, and it's a very broad overview, but it's still, it's a good kind of concise statement about how water law is used in Nebraska because it has very specific uses and uh, specific uh, areas in that uh, it is used in priorities that are made. And the integrated management plans that's put to forth by the NRDs, they must be consistent with basin-wide plans so there was this Platte to republican basin high flow diversion project which are involved in this appeal and they wanted 150 cubic feet per second to go from the Platte river down to the republican river now the nrds filed an objection to this and the objection was basically hate which is you know a lot of the objections and these kinds of things they're taking our water um we don't want them to take our water and it's going to affect us and uh, we object to this and it doesn't follow these other plans and it's not uh, it's it's going to harm us. Now, it, that's kind of a general thing. And because it's kind of a general thing to say that water, this thing uh, is going to go away from us, even though there might still be water there. It's just not the water or as much water or whatever. Um, the difficult thing in making those kinds of claims is standing. So the uh, regulator here found that it was ultimate that there was a lack of standing on behalf of the NRDs, and uh, the objections that they filed were dismissed for lack of standing. So our uh, Nebraska Supreme Court uh, picks this up from the Court of Appeals and goes, uh, again, a good overview of Nebraska water law, and then there's a great chunk on standing in Nebraska, a great chunk on what kind of standing is uh, important here, and there's also a good chunk on rules of construction the issue here that needed to be resolved was whether these interbasin statutes um, convey uh, convey more than common law standing so we've got common law standing here and then we have these other kind of hooks we have these other phrases that sound like common law standing and is it more than common law standing or is it just uh common law standing under different wording So they do uh, perform a construction of those statutes and those regulations and they find that just because they use uh, similar phrases, it doesn't mean that they're um, not going to utilize common law standing in deciding whether there's a particularized harm. So ultimately here they say that the uh, individuals who tried to challenge this uh, plan, this project, um, didn't have a particularized harm and that any harm that they did articulate uh, to be particularized was speculative because they couldn't prove it and therefore they affirmed the dismissal of the objection by the NRDs. Again, the the issue is um, they need to show you're trying to stop something before it happens, but you have to have harm. To demonstrate that you're going to be harmed by it before it happens and that's a real tough thing to do and that's where the court is here so it was ultimately affirmed uh, a lot of good law chunks out of this if you have any interest in water law standing um, rules of construction there's some good things to look at here so I would encourage everyone to take a look at that if you are in that area we've been doing this a little while
1: we don't see many water law cases
0: I think this is the first water law case that I recall
1: It's the first one I recall, too, since we've been doing this pod. So probably one of those that, again, if you're in that area,
0: take a glance at. The famous phrase, right? Whiskey is for drinking and and water is for fighting over. Maybe there should be more fights over it, though. Maybe there are, and they just don't know. Oh, we just don't know about it.
1: All right. I think that's it for the Nebraska Supreme Court. Are we on to the Court of Appeals? Yes, we are. All right. Jumping straight into it. We start with a published opinion, State v. Carlson. This is an appeal from the District Court of Sarpy County on appeal from the County Court of Sarpy County, and the issue on appeal is an appeal from a conviction for driving under the influence of alcohol, and essentially the crux of the issue here is on a motion to suppress based on uh, whether or not the officers had uh, had a reasonable suspicion to detain the individual, the Uh, Carlson and whether or not his uh, subsequent detention was in violation of his constitutional rights. And it is kind of an interesting fact pattern here. And so, you know, criminal attorneys, DUI attorneys, maybe you take a look at this one. I'm I'm guessing there's probably some really good law chunks in the briefs. But basically what happens here is Carlson goes into a grocery store at approximately 11 p.m. And he is uh, walking around shopping at that point in time. Uh, One of the store clerks sees him, uh, look intoxicated. I believe maybe he trips in the uh, store and kind of stumbles. Eventually, he goes out to his vehicle, which is parked in a handicapped parking stall, and uh, stays parked there. The clerk calls law enforcement, who arrives. At that point in time, they approach Mr. Carlson. He is in his vehicle, in the driver's seat, uh, but the vehicle is not running, and the keys uh, are found outside of the vehicle. And the interesting piece here is basically that he goes through uh, a period of talking with the officers before eventually uh, they kind of say, okay, it seems like maybe you're intoxicated or some of your story isn't adding up. We've got some issues. And then eventually they that leads them to a preliminary breath test and field sobriety, uh, which eventually finds out that he was over the .08. I believe that the initial test was like a .14 or something like that. And then um, the, the final test was a .12. And so the issue basically is whether or not the anonymous tip uh, was enough of a basis for the initial contact with Carlson, and then if the officers uh, had uh, enough evidence to continue the detention and the investigation into this matter. And so the Court of Appeals here uh, deals with it in a couple of parts, and those parts are essentially uh, what tier of uh, restriction was the individual in. And so these are the Van Akron tiers, which uh, are addressed under the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution. And so basically the first tier is that a there is no restraint of liberty of the individual. And so basically it's voluntary cooperation. And so this is just solicited through non-coercive questioning. And this kind type of contact, contact does not rise to the level of a seizure, and therefore it's outside the realm of the Fourth Amendment. The Second tier is an um, is an investigatory stop. Uh, basically saying that this um, could be a seizure that is sufficient to invoke the Fourth Amendment because um, it's less intrusive, so it, it uh, requires basically that the stopping stopping officer only have specific and articulable facts. And then the third tier is a uh, full, um, lengthy detention and investigation, and that requires uh, being justified by probable cause. And essentially the entire crux of this and, and where the argument turns by Carlson is whether or not this is a Tier 1 or a tier two stop and the court of appeals finds that this was a tier one stop and basically that this was a voluntary stop that at least at the start them just having this conversation almost doing what would be equivalent to a welfare check checking in on him and having this conversation is simply uh just a cooperative citizen interaction and there that he was free to go and there's nothing with um, him actually uh You know, being stopped by them. They didn't have their guns drawn, anything like that. And so since it was only a tier one, it was not it does not invoke Fourth Amendment protections. And therefore, there was no issue there. Then there were a couple of evidentiary objections and and issues uh, with just basically some specific language that said uh, void on the text of two of the class B licenses for the individuals who administered the breath tests. And that was found to essentially just be a, a procedural defect where it has void on those licenses so that individuals cannot copy them. And so there was no issue with allowing uh, that information and in those exhibits in. And then there was a sufficiency of uh, evidence argument that was also uh, pretty summarily dealt with. And so, again, this is a case where if you have anything with a suppression, DUI, uh, you maybe you want to take a look at it. You want to take a look at those tests There's some really good law chunks uh, as far as uh, Fourth Amendment protections go, but eventually the Court of Appeals affirmed. Yeah, that was a good one. It was a good one. That That was interesting. A good opinion. A lot of criminal opinions this week from the Court of Appeals.
0: Yeah, uh, we certainly do. This is another one. This is uh, State v. Osana Velez. This uh, Mr. Velez was convicted of first-degree sexual assault after a four-day jury trial. Um, The victim here was a college student attending um the university of nebraska in lincoln there was a birthday party that uh, these individuals went to and uh, you know they go through the facts pretty um, in detail about what happened the victim testified and, and you know it was a, a brutal attack um on this young lady and he was sentenced to 18 to 20 years in prison he alleged on appeal that there was improper expert testimony regarding a very particularized sane nurse that testified uh, indicated that there was also argued as an assignment of error that there was insufficient evidence and the sentence was excessive and ineffective assistance of counsel the improper expert testimony was dealt with there was no objection at the time um, to the expert testimony so they can't there's nothing for them to review on that so that wasn't preserved for appeal Number two, the uh, jury questions uh, about credibility are the ones who decided Um, the evidence here. You have one set of facts and then basically the defendant uh, testifying and saying that wasn't true and the jury's the one who gets to decide the credibility and they're not going to touch that um, factual determination of a jury. Excessive sentence, the sentence was within the range, uh, the statutory range, so therefore it was... um, you know not disturbed on appeal and the ineffective assistance of counsel claim was really not applicable here because the um, allegations of ineffectiveness really didn't go to the heart of anything and weren't particularized uh, statements of ineffective assistance of counsel they were just kind of broad statements that uh, if this would have happened something else would have happened uh, which is insufficient to get you anywhere in a court of appeal. so the uh, conviction and sentence were affirmed Okay. Next case we come to is
1: State versus Fay, and this is an appeal from a plea-based conviction in two separate cases that were consolidated on appeal that encompassed a conviction of criminal mischief, third-degree domestic assault, uh, first offense, and then uh, also convictions of flight to avoid arrest, obstruction of a peace officer, and failure to appear. And the big issue on appeal is uh, the issue over ineffective assistance of counsel. And essentially what happened uh, here is uh, the discussion of the entry of plea phase, and, and then the sentencing phase for Mr. Fay. And basically what happened at this point in time is that Mr. Fay was charged with a separate uh, offense, and the court, uh, the state said, yes, there is a separate offense. It's in county court right now. The court had asked, so the one in, in county court is a felony case. And then all of a sudden the court's like, okay, you know, it doesn't matter. It's not before the court. He's innocent until proof of guilty in this matter. So I, I'm not considering it. The defendant then gets a little confused and basically says, I'm confused, I'm confused, I don't understand, you know, this case is only an allegation. At that point in time, the court clarifies and says, we're here on uh, the two cases you've been found guilty on, and that's what I'm sentencing for you for right now. The other cases that are not pending in front of me. I'm not bringing up and I'm not even considering any of them. And then he says, do you understand that? And the defendant says, yeah. And so basically this entire case turns on if this confirmation of, yeah, confirmed uh, the court curing uh, its consideration of this other uh, case that was not before the court. And basically here the Court of appeal says, yes, uh, that statement does confirm. um, cure the the defendant's confusion, and based on the record of him saying, "Yeah," uh, there was no reason to believe that uh, trial counsel had a reason to believe that the defendant was still confused or required additional information or counseling on the subject before proceeding with sentencing. And so, uh, th- therefore, his uh, claim of an assistance of of ineffective assistance of counsel failed, and the court of appeals affirmed.
0: State v. Neal. This uh, was a bench trial. Second-degree forgery was the conviction, together with attempted theft and abuse of a vulnerable adult. Mr. Neal was sentenced to 30 to 60 months in prison. On appeal, he alleged insufficiency of evidence, excessive sentence. Um, The facts involve the defendant's aunt. Um, He had power of attorney over his aunt, and he deeded some property that he was living into. This is out in Scottsbluff County. He deeded some property that he was uh, living in um, to... uh, some other people through quick claim deeds on the property and uh he recorded deeds that were not her signature and they were not properly notarized and he attempted to thieve from or thieve attempted to steal yeah
1: let's just go let's
0: go steal i I was trying to use theft i was trying to use the thievery (laughs) attempted thievery um of this property uh and Um, Eventually, the investigation led to an abuse of a vulnerable adult for financial abuse, which is also a form of uh, financial exploitation, is part of uh, the exploitation and abuse. The court here found that there was sufficiency of evidence because they viewed uh, the facts in the light most favorable to the state and found that a reasonable trier fact could find those uh, elements of the uh, offense beyond a reasonable doubt. And for the excessive sentence portion, they found no abuse of discretion. It was within the statutory range, and it was affirmed. Okay, next case we
1: come to is State of Nebraska versus Chad Wright. And this is an appeal from the District Court of Lancaster County on appeal from the uh, County Court of Lancaster County on charges of disturbing the peace, loitering, and trespass, um, and uh, convictions based on a bench trial. And basically what happened here was Mr. Wright went to a gas station in or a convenience store in... Uh, link or an office depot store in Lincoln uh, that during the uh, COVID-19 mask mandate in May of May 19th of 2021 and basically refused to wear a face covering this results in a long drawn out altercation and engagement with some of the employees at this office depot and results in the underlying charges um, essentially with him being unwilling to leave or unwilling to wear uh, this mask. And so the uh, county court found him guilty of these charges, and then on appeal, uh, Wright spe- failed to specifically raise any assignments of error. On appeal, the court of appeals did not find any pla- plain error in the record, uh, mostly as it related
0: to sufficiency of evidence, and therefore the conviction was affirmed. State v. Morris. This is an appeal out of Lancaster County after a plea-based conviction for first-degree assault. Um, the defendant here was sentenced to 18 to 20 years in prison um their allegations or excuse me the of severe on um appeal are excessive sentence and ineffective assistance of counsel um, the facts here involve a violent assault uh, on a neighbor and a good samaritan who is helping an elderly neighbor um, i think from my, they quoted the PSI, uh, the judge did, and there was some information here that uh, seems to allege that it was part of a mental health episode, um, but still there was a culpable nature of his actions. And uh, that equals the 18 to 20 years that he was um, given as part of the conviction um, for his plea. The excessive sentence was affirmed because it was within the statutory range. And In the ineffective assistance of counsel, um, was failed uh, on appeal because there was a good colloquy between the state and the defendant um before the plea was accepted and i want to read this quote because i think it's good and um, just to remind judges that this is a good thing to do when you're uh, taking a plea is to make sure cover the basis for any ineffective assistance at counsel because what you're doing um the court here it quotes uh, state v vanderpool from the Nebraska supreme court it says um, when the defendant was, uh, you know, advised of the rights and it was all done during the sanctity of a full and formal court proceeding, it is impugned by a mere, uh, can be impugned by a mere recantation made after the doors of the prison clang shut. We are wasting our time. And that if trial judges making a mockery out of the arrangement process, uh, if you let people go back on what they say on the record before the plea. I, I thought that was a good quote and something that could be used in a good reminder to, uh, courts to make sure that those uh... things happen prior to taking the plea
1: okay next case we come to is state versus gozo and this is an appeal from the district court of lancaster county this is an appeal uh... based on a plea-based conviction for one count of first-degree sexual assault and one count of child enticement and a sentence of forty to fifty years in imprisonment on the sexual assault conviction and three to three years for the child enticement and uh... again you know pretty detailed facts section that I'm not going to get into, but the uh, basis for the appeal is excessive sentence. Here, uh, all of the relevant factors were considered, <clears throat> and again, this is one of the valuable things uh, as John just talked about. You know, they we continually see in these opinions where the court of appeals and supreme court will point out the direct uh, parts of that uh, sentencing order that discuss the. Uh, you know, social and cultural background factors, age, mentality, all those things. And so those detailed orders, you know, it's clear help here. And um, in this case, the judge had uh, considered the relevant factors and the sentence was within the statutory range. And so therefore that was affirmed. And then there was an issue of ineffective assistance of counsel. Basically here, uh, Gozo essentially is arguing that the trial counsel had failed to offer enough mitigating Uh, factors for why this incident had happened and that he also had maybe not been advised of the ability to have character reference letters and as the court of appeal states it's really hard to address something like that on appeal Um, and there rarely is something in the record that's going to tell you whether or not he was advised of the ability to have uh, character reference letters or any information like that and You know, as they say, there was no ability to tell here, but there were mitigating factors that were offered and they were considered. And so, therefore, they found that there was not any sort of ineffective assistance of counsel and affirmed on both counts. Are we good? I think that's it.
0: I just got texted. I'm late to a flag football game.
1: Oh no! <laughs> well, we better run then. Well, we better so there's, run. Now. Oh, so there's no fun quips at the end. I okay. We've got a Nebraska game tonight. You got to tell me, us Illinois, do we get bowl eligible? Do we uh, do we take another step? Okay. Well, then we just. Good news is the volleyball team will win. Yeah, they will. So when Nebraska is not playing well football wise, I'm gonna flip on the volleyball game and just. I, I listen. Like,
0: like I always say, I hope I'm wrong. I hope they win. Yeah. I just—it's a road game, and we've seen the we got we've seen this movie too many times. We got some injuries on defense. I just—I don't know. I worry. Yeah, I, I worry. Yeah. No, all right. Uh, that's it for uh, point two law review. Brought to you by Anderson Klein Brewster and Brandt. offices in Minden, Holdridge, and Carney. Um, anything else before I go? Literally run to a flag football game. I don't think so. Who are you? <laughs> Who? are, oh, we're the Tar Heels. Ah, the Tar Heels. Is that like what you that. meant? Oh, you're asking my no, name. I was asking your name. Sorry, I was giving worry. my flag football yeah, team. Yeah, the Tar Heels. Uh, North John Carolina?
1: <laughs> that's a little odd, but okay. I don't know. They don't know. I didn't know. So Cheer John Brandt. I'm Carson uh, Messer Smith. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks.
0: Bathing my memory.